Morning, Bethel. I'm going to pull an audible here this morning and change the uh, scripture reading. So if you could turn in your Bibles instead of to our, our sermon text, actually to Psalm 115. We're going to read that one together. You can find it on page 510 if you uh, are using the Pew Bible, or if you don't have a Bible, there's one in the Pew in front of you, and you can turn to page 510 and find Psalm 115. And we'll read that together before we pray. So if you wouldn't mind joining me in, in standing in honor of God's Word. Psalm 115. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see, they have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell, they have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both the small and the great. May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he has given to the children of man. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. But we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. This is God's word. You may be seated. Okay, well, you can turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 43, and that can be found on page 604 in the uh, Pew Bible there. There's an outline in the uh, bulletin if that's helpful. I think the points will also be up on the screen. You can follow along that way as well. Um, as you're turning there, we're actually going to just read the text as we go through it, as we study this passage. I'm not going to read the whole thing um, on the front end here, but just as we prepare to walk through this passage, I want you to think about your own heart, your own life in relation to God and how you relate to Him. Do you relate to God? This is like day in and day out. And maybe this is even just periodic, but if, if it's ever the case, this is such a relevant passage. Do you ever relate to God more like a slave master than a redeemer? So redeemers come to liberate and free. Slave masters, you know, weigh you down with heavy burdens. So does it seem like his commands, does it actually seem like his commands are for your good? Or do they oftentimes feel like, again, they're weighing you down? So 
What does obedience to God feel like to you, whether it's giving or serving or just obedience in general or sharing the gospel? Or what about when his commands kind of cut against the grain of our soul? Or when, when it's particularly difficult, like not compromising at work or working on a bad marriage or loving a wayward child or loving an enemy? Is God a slave master or is he an emancipator? So, you know, Jesus came on the scene and he says, he said, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke on you and learn from from me. I'm gentle and humble in heart. You'll find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. If you quoted that verse to someone who's not a Christian in your life who knows you well, Would they believe you? Like, they know you well as a Christian. Does your life seem to say, Jesus' yoke is easy and his burden is light? I mean, who wants to go to a dentist who looks like he's from the backwoods of West Virginia? Just a little, thank you. Okay, I knew Greg would appreciate that. I know, caricature. I got family that lives in West Virginia, so nothing against the West Virginians. Are we living like living proof that God is who he says he is? That his grace and his glory is what he says it is? So, regardless of what your honest answer is, and if, if you're kind of thinking, wow, ugh, okay, do you want to live a life that makes these things believable? Do you want your life to adorn rather than undermine the gospel? Well, Isaiah is going to give us grace. God's going to give us grace here in Isaiah to, sh- to show us what this path looks like, to show us how. So I hope that you're hungry for chewing on this passage and, and ingesting the grace that's here. So quick contextual orientation here. Um, first half of the book, 1 to 39, all this judgment because of the rebellion of God's people and the nations as well. But then there's this abrupt turning of the corner, chapter 40, verse 1, and all of a sudden God is speaking comfort. Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. He promises deliverance. And last week we looked at how he has, you know, um, He has them call to mind, you know, he's promised this deliverance, and he wants them to call to mind the Exodus deliverance. Hey, I've done it before. I've got a track record of mighty deliverances. I can and I will do it again. So that was some of what we looked at last week. And then he turns the corner, and this is, again, last week's text. So look at 4318. Just look up a few verses from where we'll start this morning. 4318. He turns the corner and says, Remember not the former things, those deliverances in the past, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. You perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. It's like a new exodus. Verse 20, I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I form for myself. Why? Why does he bless his people like this and deliver them that they might declare his praise? So his people are to declare his praise as his witnesses, 
of who he is and how great he is and what he's done, but at least in this context, they're in no spiritual state to do so. They need revival before they will rejoice in him. And maybe some of us are in the same boat. Maybe you're feeling worn out by religion. Okay, first point here, verses 22 to 24. The Lord says, Yet you did not call upon me, O Jacob, but you have been weary of me, O Israel. You have not brought me sheep for burnt offerings or honored me with your sacrifices. I have not burdened you with offerings or wearied you with frankincense. You've not bought me sweet cane with money or satisfied me with the fat of your sacrifices, but you have burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities. So God says to his people, you haven't called on me to deliver and strengthen you, and you're weary of me. Hmm, maybe those two are connected. You haven't called on me, and yet you're weary of me. So God says, I I mean, think about your life. How often do we live independently, self-sufficiently, and we wonder why we're so tired, why we're so weary? You know what I'm saying? Anybody have that experience? Am I the only one? Okay, great, thank you. Um, So this is why we get weary because we don't call on him. God says, I haven't been a slave master toward you. You've not brought burnt offerings or honored me with your sacrifices, and yet I haven't burdened you with them, and yet you're weary of me. So that may be how they felt, but what's really happening is that they've burdened the Lord and with their sins. Okay, They've actually made a slave of him. Do you see that? You have burdened me like, like making him a pack horse, enslaving him in a sense. Well, what does that mean? Well, flip all the way back to the beginning of Isaiah, because there's some echoes of where things got started here. Look at Isaiah 111. It's on page 566. The Lord says, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. Verse 13, bring no more vain offerings. A little bit further along. I cannot endure iniquity in solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They've become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. So how is it that the very things intended to free and strengthen us, the very one desiring to give strength and rest and refreshment, why why do those things seem like a burden and a drain and wearisome? And then they become this burden to God. Well, that's what happens when we turn relationship with the triune God into human religion, man-made religion. When we turn the good commands and gifts of the Lord, given for our refreshment and benefit, into a new law. This can look good on the surface, but underneath, we are attempting to justify ourselves by our works. Okay, this is what Israel did. They were redeemed from Egypt, right? And then the law was given to them, not in order to, as a ladder to make it to heaven, but it was given to give shape 
to their lives and protection. It was to actually bring freedom and life, right? So do not covet. What's slavery to covet, isn't it? Don't commit adultery. I'm just keeping you out of the, the ditch. Lying will enslave you. Don't give false witness. So even the Sabbath, it was a gift. God made the Sabbath for man, not man for the Sabbath. But what did they do? They turned it into a ladder to earn God's favor, or to maintain it at least. So we can actually do the same thing. We can do it with the word, checking the boxes. We feel better on the days when we've, on the weeks when we've checked lots of boxes. We feel like we're more acceptable to God. Prayer, church gathering, serving in the church. We want so bad to be worthy of God's grace, to deserve it even just a little bit. We also want to justify ourselves. We're, we're spring-loaded to self-righteousness. And usually it's kind of funny. It's like a select set of laws, ones that are easier for us in our own strength to obey. So um, follow me here. See if you've seen this in your own experience in your own life or around you in the church. We can conveniently deselect the difficult ones. So for instance, you have people who support missionaries and they're proud of it, and they look down on others who don't seem to care about missions, but they haven't opened their mouths in years to talk to someone here about the gospel. Or maybe we don't drink caffeine or, or drink or see R-rated movies or see any movies, but the respectable sins don't seem to loom very large. There's a log in our eye, we can't see it. Anxiety and frustration, impatience and irritability, ingratitude and complaint, pride and self-righteousness, covetousness and jealousy, a gossipy and critical spirit. We can set up this new law and think, yeah, I'm pretty good, better than. Maybe we tithe and serve faithfully and get self-righteous and judgmental of those who don't. Or maybe it's our schooling choice, or we live more simply than other people, or we give more of our time. Again, there's so many of these things. They're not bad things. They're good things, right? But we can turn them into a new law. It's a man-made religion. And we feel justified in God's sight when we've kept our law. And then what we think is we can start thinking we can obligate God, put him in debt by our sacrifices, you know, going through those religious motions is kind of like building up some karma credit. Then guess what happens? Suffering hits, and it exposes how we're living this man-made religion. Here's how it goes. The suffering hits, and we, we're like, wait, wait, wait a second here. I'd like to cash in on all my sacrificial investment. God, you owe me. I mean, I've been, I deserve better than this because of all that I've done. I've kept my law. I mean, your law. How could you allow this? Why? Because deep down you think you deserve better. You're a good religious taxpayer. God owes you. And you get weary. Or maybe it just wears you down because you see others not working nearly as hard as you, and they seem to be just doing fine. So you say, forget it. Or maybe instead of suffering, kind of kicking this up, maybe what happens is we want something. 
or we fear something. And so we kick our religion into high gear, man-made religion in high gear. We start reading the Bible. We start praying. We start attending church more faithfully because, because we need God to bless us with what we want or protect us from what we fear. So we use religion to get what we really want. Kind of sounds like idolatry, doesn't it? We want God at our beck and call. And religion's like the little lever that we pull, the bell that we ring. That's trying to make a slave of God, burdening him with our sins. And ironically, it's not just us who gets worn out by religion. God does as well. You've burdened me. You've made a slave. You've tried to of me with your sins. You've wearied me with your iniquities. So Ray Ortland writes, what God wants is for worship to unburden sinners. That's what the sacrificial system was for. God never meant it to be a wearying imposition. We violate worship when we turn a means of grace into a means of weariness. So following or obeying God, seems, does it seem like a burden, like a drag, like a heavy weight? Well, of course it does when you're doing it in your own strength to try to justify yourself. What burdens God, listen, this is, you got to hear this. This is who our God is. This is the foundation of the gospel. What burdens God and wearies him is not our continual coming for more grace and mercy. Like, okay, again today? Like, didn't you come enough yesterday? Like, how? That's not what burdens the Lord. What burdens him is our stubborn refusal to call on him. Our refusal to come to him for more grace and mercy. That's what really bothers him. 43, 22, you didn't call upon me, O Jacob, but you've been weary of me. So our problem is not that God requires too much. Our problem is, is our unwillingness to trust and obey him. He's burdened when we stubbornly try to bear our own burdens. He gets weary of our refusal to trade our weariness for his strength, those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. That's where strength and joy and freedom comes from. So we need to see this insanity for what it is, the man-made religion, and realize that there's this loving, burden-bearing God. He's the one we push away when we choose man-made religion in its place. We need to hear the good news again. <laughs> Why did Jesus come? Keep reading Isaiah 53. He bore our sins the burden of our sins. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And he did it all so that he could say, come to me. I took care of the burdens. I bore it all the way to the cross. And then it's buried and paid for. It's done so that your burden could be released. You could come to me, all your weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. So be sure you don't miss where this is in the context. This is amazing. This man-made religion, we think, boy, this is crazy. Why do I even do this sometimes? I mean, for us to just stiff-arm God and go, he could just be so sharp with us in response. But where is this in context? All we've given him is our sin, and still he's talking to us in order to get our attention and win our hearts. Isn't that like him? <laughs> so 
So usually I'd have this, I'd try to have like a clear transition between point number one and point number two. You know, because there'd be like a clear transitional phrase or idea that helps you get from point A to point B. Not so here. And that's actually the glory of it. If you see verse 24 and then verse 25, there's just no transition. It's, there's, it's the refreshing glory of the gospel non sequitur. Look at verse 25. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. So how do you get from 24 to 25? Only by grace. <laughs> you see that? That's the whole point. It's a glorious non sequitur. You know what a non sequitur is? It's a conclusion or statement that does not logically follow from the previous argument or statement. So a couple of stupid examples so that it's clear. Sally is so cranky and hypercritical of everyone. Sally is a Christian. Christians are all so cranky and hypercritical of everyone. Now, unfortunately, that might be true um, in some cases. But no, it doesn't follow that all Christians are like that because Sally is. It's a non sequitur. Frank is so humble and gracious. Frank is an atheist. Atheism makes people more loving than religion. Okay. How can this follow from us just trying to make our own law? God says, this is who I am. I forgive not because of your religious performance. Not because you deserve it. But rather in spite of it. (laughs) I do it for my own sake. I'm motivated by self-generated mercy and love. I am. I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. (laughs) I'm not indebted to forgive you. I'm not obligated by your religiosity. Your righteous deeds are actually like filthy rags in my holy sight. So here God says this, which is just a glorious gospel word, but deep down we resist. We want to deserve God's blessings at least a little bit. We want to justify ourselves. Why do we think we deserve better? Well, we've worked pretty hard. We're better than most. We deserve better. God says, okay, come on. Let's take this one to the court and see who wins the case. Go ahead, make your case. If, if you think that your religiosity is going to put you in my good graces. Look at verse 26. Put me in remembrance. Let us argue at law. In the courtroom, together, set forth your case that you may be proved right. Your first first father sinned, could be Adam, could be Abraham, could be Jacob, Um, doesn't really matter. The point is the same. Your mediators transgressed against me. It's just all of human history over and over and over again. Therefore, I will profane the princes of the sanctuary. Um, Many translations actually go with past tense. So I did this. I disgraced the dignitaries of your temple. Um, I consigned Jacob to destruction and Israel to scorn. Okay, so we, we often try to earn God's favor. We try to justify ourselves. We stiff arm his free grace and we want to earn it instead. So God invites us into the courtroom. But do you see it? Like unless you're totally blind and dull, I think silence would fall when the perfectly holy God says, set forth your case. Right? Who's going to just say, okay, yeah, I did this and this? If you really saw him, if you really saw yourself. So guilt and condemnation is certainly what we expect to hear next here. Judgment. Woe is me, I'm undone. But instead, 
what comes is another gospel non sequitur. Like, how in the world did you get from here to there? How do you get from 43.28 to 44.1? Again, only by grace. Look at 44.1. But now, here are these people that want to take God to court, and he says, I want to pour out more grace on you. But now hear, O Jacob, my servant Israel, whom I've chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb, and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. So you see the connection here with verse 22, 43-22? You've been weary of me. And what does the Lord want to do? He just wants to refresh them. You're weary. You're thirsty. You've been dutifully going through the motions thinking that your dryness is its probably God's fault. Why doesn't he answer my prayer? He's not coming through. But really, we've been worshiping gods of our own making. Calling on our religious performance to make us feel better, our sense of being better than the next guy. We've got nothing to offer God. The grace of God comes in and says, drop the stuff in your hand that you think commends you to God. We are only saved by grace. We are only ever right with God by his grace. And so we need to get under the fountain of his grace and let it wash over us. I want to refresh you is what he says here. Ortland again writes this, your part is not to deny your thirst, but to let the Lord quench it. John 7.37, Jesus says the same thing. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Where else are we going to have a right to this kind of blessing? It's only in Christ, only through Christ. So when the Spirit is poured out and the man-made religion is replaced with the true gospel of Jesus Christ, then you know what happens? It brings such a transformation that people just start lining up. Look at verse 5. This one will say, I'm the Lord's. Another will call on the name of Jacob, and another will write on his hand, the Lord's, and name himself by the name of Israel. People outside of the people of God, outside of Israel, starting to come in. They're being attracted because when God, by his spirit, pours out this refreshing grace, people are so transformed that others look on and say, I want to get in on that. So, Bethel, could it be that our witness is not as effective as it should be because we are too often worn out by religion? And we don't have much to say to others about the freedom and the joy and the rest that comes from experiencing the burden-bearing grace of Jesus. Experiencing it, not just knowing it in our heads, but experiencing it. There is no other Savior. There's no other way. We dare not try to, you know, deselect and pick our own little law and see if we can pull it off. Enough of man-made religion and self-salvation projects. Look at verses 6 and 7. Thus says the Lord, the, the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, 
I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God who is like me. Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. So why in the world would we go anywhere else? Look anywhere else. He alone can help us. There's no God besides our God, Yahweh. There's no other religions. So this past week, I'm talking with a a guy that I've been meeting with periodically um, several times over the last few weeks, sharing the gospel with him. And um, he called me. It had a really bad day. And we met up that night. And he was really frustrated with himself because of some stupid things he had done that day. He had failed miserably. And at one point in the conversation, I said, there's two options, the meritocracy or Jesus. Okay, so the meritocracy meaning I'm okay if I perform. He'd screwed up. So now you're damned in the meritocracy. Self-righteousness, self-glory if you succeed, Self-pity, self-loathing, self, self-loathing if you fail. Or Jesus, for my own sake I do this. You can have it for free, free of charge. And guess what? If you get this grace that's not based on your performance, you will be totally humbled because you didn't do it. All you deserve is condemnation. Jesus took that condemnation for you. And pff, <laughs> this is I've got no, nothing to, to boast of here. Not to us, not to us. Psalm 115. So it'll humble you, but it'll make you confident because you're going to know who you are. You're going to know who you are in your bad days. You're going to know who you are in your good days. He didn't know who he was. Because if I fail, so God is calling us out of the burdensome, wearisome desert of man-made religion into the freeing, liberating, life-giving, oxygenating, energizing, joy-giving salvation that he provides. And it's in that place that we can live with humility and confidence. So verse 8, fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There's no rock. I know not any. So if we get this, if we start living regularly, actually believing the gospel, rejecting our impulses to man-made religion, it, and we're going to experience that freedom and rest and joy, it just might make sense. In fact, it might even become natural to be God's witnesses. See, if we relate to God like Christianity is this moralistic religion, be a good person and God will bless you. Do you hear the echoes of the meritocracy there? You're never going to have the courage, desire, or joy to be his witness. Make sure you connect these thoughts. Moralistic religion is not good news. It's not good news of total rescue, undeserved favor and blessing. Moralistic religion is advice. Do better, and it'll go better. And that's burdensome advice, especially when you can't keep up. 
So enough of our false religion. It's empty. It's worthless. It only weighs us down. So the text goes from there to the folly of idolatry. And so just so we don't hold this thing, I'm not going to come on it on a ton because it's pretty obvious. But 9 to 20, verses 9 to 20, are just all about the folly of idolatry to help us not wander down that dead-end path. But just so that we don't hold this out at arm's length, since we don't probably carve any images and stick them in our houses these days, what is an idol? Let me give you a few quotes here um, from several different, or a couple different writers here. An idol is any heart-level substitute for God. It's Ray Orland. Tim Keller. Idolatry is taking some incomplete joy of this world and building your entire life on it. He also says, what is an idol? It's anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to get, anything you seek to give you what only God can give. It can be family and children or career and making money or achievement and critical acclaim or saving face and social standing. It can be a romantic relationship, peer approval, competence and skill, secure and comfortable circumstances, your beauty or your brains, a great political or social cause, your morality and virtue, or even success in Christian ministry. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. Okay, so we all need to guard our hearts here. We all need to hear the words of 1 John 5, 21. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. So let's read verses 9 to 20 here. All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Do you see, God is not burdening us because he needs us to do all these things. He wants to give to us. The idols can't ultimately give us anything. They can't do anything for us. They can't profit us. God wants to bless us and help us. Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble. Let them stand forth. They shall be terrified. They shall be put to shame together. You put your trust in in empty idols, and eventually you will be put to shame. You trust in the Lord, the real God, you will never be put to shame. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool, works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. We work so hard on and we work so hard for our precious idols. The carpenter stretches a line, he marks it out with a pencil, he shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass, he shapes it into the figure of a man, with the beauty of a man, to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars or chooses a cypress tree or an oak tree and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest, he lets it. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it, then it becomes fuel for a man, he takes a part of it and warms himself, he kindles a fire and bakes bread, also he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also he warms himself and says, Ah, I'm warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. 
He prays to it and says, deliver me for you are my God. They know not, nor do they discern. For he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see and their hearts so that they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, half of it I burned in the fire also. I baked bread on its coals. I roasted meat and have eaten. And shall I make the rest of it into an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray, and he cannot deliver himself or say, is there not a lie in my right hand? So as you read through that, it's idolatry is silly. It's crazy. It's insane. But you know what? It's the most natural thing in the world. We so naturally look to finite things for transcendent meaning. We try to make secondary things into ultimate things. I mean, idols are kind of like human parasites. Well, of course, because we make them. They're a projection of our human strength or ingenuity or beauty or competence. They're made by our strength, quote-unquote, which is really weakness. They're made in our image for our glory. And as we are so naturally committed to our self-glory, we love the echoes of our greatness. That's why we're drawn to them. That's why this past week's fighter verse is another way of saying, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Okay? So if I had some sort of spiritual x-ray vision, I mean, God does, so that's all that really matters. And I said, what's that in your hand? You know, here, is there not a lie in my right hand? What's in your hand this morning? Are there any one of these idolatrous lies in your hand that you've been believing? And, and again, if so, know that Satan wants to condemn you for that and just drive your, your kind of head, just rub your face in it. The Spirit of God wants to convict you so that you can drop it and cling to Jesus because he loves you. So if you're convicted, this is great. The Lord wants to bring you greater freedom because he loves you. So if you've got something in your hand, and I think this is a good word for all of us, we are prone to this. John Calvin said our hearts are like idol factories. What should we do? Last point. Remember, return, and sing. (laughs) And take communion. I didn't put that in the notes, but that's part of it. Verse 21. Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you. You are my servant, O Israel. You will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. It's easy for him to do it as far as the east is from the west, just like a mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Note the order. Return to me if you want me to redeem you. No. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. So remember these things. Verse 21. 
Remember what things? Well, at least man-made religion wears you out, and it's wearisome to God, and by works of the law, no one will be justified in God's sight. He alone saves. He alone forgives for his own sake. Idols are nothing. Idols are worthless. And then look at this wonderful contrast in these few verses here. What do we do? We form and fashion our own idols in our own image, but the Lord formed and fashioned us in his image. Why would we bow to an image made by man, made in our image? So as we come to the table here in a couple minutes, we remember the Lord's death in our place. So we remember the gospel. We look back to what he has done to redeem us. We need to remember that. That is our only salvation, not our man-made religion, not our keeping some select set of laws that you know, are easier for us than others so that we can kind of get a leg up and have some moral high ground. No, we need to remember the cross, rehearse the cross. It's for his own sake. It's utterly free from our performance that he gives us forgiveness. We just need to trust him and receive it with the empty hands of faith. And we need to receive it again and again and again because we are spring-loaded to self-righteousness. But don't just focus on what you need to remember. Notice that the greater meaning of this table is that he has not and he will not forget us. Do you see that? (laughs) It says, remember these things, and then it ends with verse 22. um, I'm sorry, the end of verse 21. You will not be forgotten by me. That's even deeper. That's even more foundational. Isn't that sweet? So the table is an opportunity for us to give thanks that he has blotted out our transgressions and sins. They're covered by the blood of Jesus. And remember, as you eat and drink, remember that you will not be forgotten. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Remember, rehearse that God will never leave or forsake you. That is something to chew on. That is something to remember and rehearse (laughs) that's something to eat and drink to. It's like cheers at the Lord's table this morning. For some of us, it may be a call to return. If there's something in your hand, and and you might still be clinging tightly here. That's 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 why there's so much good news in here to pry your fingers loose so that you'll drop it and come with empty hands. So you can receive grace. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So open your hands, drop it, and come. Gives grace to the humble. So we need to examine ourselves. Listen to uh, Spurgeon here. He'll help us get ready for the table. He says, let our happy gaze, Chuck sent this, I think this week, It it was timely. Let our happy gaze ponder the notable act of divine mercy blotted out. God himself appears upon the scene and in divine generosity, instead of manifesting his anger, reveals his grace. He at once and forever effectually removes the mischief. I love it. That's a great word for what we do, our mischief. By blotting it out from existence once and for all, against the justified man no sin remains. The great transaction of the cross has eternally removed his transgressions from him. 
on Calvary's summit, the great deed by which the sin of all the chosen was forever put away was completely and effectually performed. And then he says, let us obey the gracious command, return to me. I love this. Why should pardoned sinners live at a distance from their God? If all of our sins have been forgiven, let no legal fear hold us back from the boldest access to our Lord. Let backslidings be bemoaned, but let us not persevere in them. Don't beat yourself up forever. Let us, in the power of the Holy Spirit, return to intimate communion with the Lord. Oh, Lord, restore us now. That's what this table is all about. If you're in Christ, no matter how you came in, if you've been wandering, you re- remember the gospel, you return with empty hands, drop whatever's in your hand, and you eat and drink the grace of Jesus. And then we're going to sing. Look at verse 23. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth. Break forth into singing, O mountains, O forest. The same forest that, you know, you insanely tried to turn into a little god. No, the trees praise God, the only true God. The trees that get turned into little gods, they praise God. O forest and every tree in it, for the Lord has redeemed Jacob and will be glorified in Israel. So it's so appropriate. We're going to sing Man of Sorrows here in a little bit. Listen to some of these words. Sent of heaven, God's own son, to purchase and redeem and reconcile the very ones who nailed him to that tree. It's not our performance. It's not for our sake what we've done. It's his sake. Now my debt is paid. It's paid in full by the precious blood that my Jesus spilled. Now the curse of sin has no hold on me. Whom the Son sets free, oh, is free indeed. So let's remember and return and sing. It's a great segue to the Lord's Supper. So if the men who are going to serve, if you can come up and the musicians can come on up, remember, return, eat, drink, and sing. One final word here. If any of you are here and you're still trying to kind of keep your own law and justify yourself, do you see how that's a dead end? You don't want to be a slave to the meritocracy. That is where real burdensome slavery is. So I would love to talk to you afterwards if you want to know how to trust in Jesus. But again, if you're still wrestling through those things, if you're not a believer, if you're not trusting in Jesus, just let the elements pass. Um, There's nothing magical about eating a little wafer and drinking juice if you're not trusting in Jesus. Let me pray and then we're going to participate in the table. Oh God, I thank you. You are such a good and gracious Savior. You are the Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And I pray that we would so know it through the grace and blood, life and death and resurrection of your son Jesus that we would be thrilled and that our lives would be living proof of that promise for your great namesake i pray in jesus name
Amen.